Welcome to the latest episode of On The Case, this time looking at a pair of High Court decisions in which landlords have secured summary judgment on claims for rent arrears accrued during the pandemic. First came Commerce Real Investment Gesellschaft v TFS Stores Limited, then swiftly followed Bank of New York Mellon International Limited versus Cine UK Limited and others. I am delighted to say I am joined today by Kim Clifford, Senior Associate at Ashurst, to discuss these cases and what they mean for landlords and tenants. Welcome, Kim. Thanks, Jess. Nice to be with you. So um, the Coronavirus Act 2020 and the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act 2020 still prevent landlords from bringing forfeiture proceedings, issuing statutory demands, serving winding up petitions or commencing uh, the the commercial rent arrears recovery process. Uh, And they've done so pretty much throughout the pandemic. But that did still leave open to landlords um, the, uh, the option to bring court proceedings simply claiming arrears of rent. So First, can you just outline for us how such a claim would typically operate? Yes, of course. And you're quite right, actually. The government legislation and measures have actually led to somewhat of almost a resurgence of these types of claims in the last mm. 12 months, which, to be honest, to be honest with you, they'd be previously been unfavoured and not particularly mm. used and seen by landlords a bit of a last resort or something that was expensive and protracted but I guess like many things over the last year views have had to change and especially when like you say that was the only option available. Mm. A literal last resort now I guess. (laughs) Indeed so the first step in the process in a commercial context is for the landlord to issue what's known as a letter for action Mm -hmm. to the tenant setting out the full details of the arrears and the basis they are due um, in accordance with the pre-action protocol. Should there be non-engagement from the tenant or no resolution, the next step is then for the landlord to issue the proceedings in court by preparing a claim form and particulars of claim. Now, taking the proceedings at a very high level, the tenant as defendant then has an opportunity to respond to the claim in its defence before the landlord closes the pleadings with a reply. So in such proceedings, the parties ordinarily then exchange any disclosure of relevant documents or any evidence before the claim is then heard before a judge. In several of the claims, though, as I'm sure we're going to come on to, landlords in these cases are applied for summary judgment. Mm. And that is a procedure that allows the court to decide a claim without the need for a full trial. Uh, It all sounds very straightforward, but uh, I'm sure, as with many things, the circumstances of the pandemic have have made things a little bit more complicated. Um, And in the space of a week, we've had two of these High Court decisions, as I mentioned, uh, in which tenants raised a number of uh, COVID-19 related grounds of defence in which they were effectively uh, arguing at this stage that that the claims weren't um, suitable for summary judgment. Um, and uh, the two cases that, that we've had involve some very familiar names. So just, just sort of outline for us who the parties involved were and, and, and the premises in, uh, at the centre of these cases. Yeah, it's interesting. Like you say, it's been a bit like buses recently in the property <laughs> sphere. We waited ages for the first decision. And then what would you know? We had two at once with Chief Master Marsh pipping Master Dagnall to the post <laughs> on the 16th of April in the first decision. Um, And that was a decision in favour of the leasehold owners of Westfield Shopping Centre Mm -hmm. at Shepherd's Bush in London. And that was a case against the fragrance shop. 
The second decision then quickly came just under, I think, a week later on the 22nd of April. And here in that case, Master Dagnall brought together several claims before him in respect of arrears owned by Cine UK, Mecca Bingo and Sports Direct. Mm-hmm. Um, the landlords here uh, in the cases were the Bank of New York Mellon and AEW UK REIT. There were three premises in question across the pre- uh, cases, which were uh, Cinema in Bristol, a Mecca Bingo in Dagenham, uh, and a Sports Direct in Blackpool. So we had properties right across the country in a real mm. uh, wide range, really. So it's, a, it's almost kind of serves as a little bit of a, a test case, really, you, you, with lots of you know example properties that could have wide effect uh, on property portfolios across the country without officially being uh, a test case. But um, these two cases both involved, as we've mentioned, uh, landlords seeking summary judgment. Uh, but the tenants did raise uh, a number of arguments to the effect uh, that a full trial was, was needed to resolve the issue. So, so what were uh, in summary, the main grounds advanced uh, by the tenants in these cases? Yes, so the main arguments put forward by the tenants were across the two cases were, first of all, that summary judgment was unsuitable, as the tenants said that their defences were complex and that the court needed an appreciation of the commercial and factual background in order to make a decision. They also interestingly went on to say that the code of practice introduced by the government uh, during the pandemic encouraged landlords, they said, and tenants to negotiate. And they said that therefore landlords should be negotiating rather than going around issuing proceedings, which was quite an interesting concept with the code being Mm. voluntary. They then went on to say that in terms of the leases themselves, that the wording damage and destruction in the rent cessor clauses should be triggered only by an inability to trade and not just physical damage. Mm -hmm. And that if that argument failed, they said that this term should be implied. In the second of the cases, they also went on to explore some additional arguments. So they also looked at the fact that the landlords had ensured the loss of rent, which the tenants had paid for, and the tenants therefore said the tenants should be entitled to not pay the rent. And finally, the tenants said that the lockdowns should be seen as a frustrating event that was wholly unforeseeable and rendered the commercial purpose of the leases temporarily, well, at least impossible or unfulfillable. So there really was a broad range of arguments Mm. for the court put forward by the tenants. And I suppose in theory, we we could have had a bit of a nightmare scenario where where one master granted summary judgment and one master didn't, or or they they took different approaches. But thankfully, uh, the two masters did deal with the issues uh, in similar ways. And uh, and I think that the second judgment, the Bank of New York Mellon judgment, a hundred pages uh, in length, (laughs) was was a particularly comprehensive uh, and uh, and. Uh, I think, very well uh, written uh, judgment summarising the the position. So how in turn um, did the masters deal with those main arguments um, advanced by the tenants? Yeah, so it's interesting what you like you say there. So Master Dagnall also picked up in his decision, the earlier decision, and commented that he himself considered the decisions to be consistent in terms of their analysis and conclusions, mm. which is also quite helpful. And <laughs> um, like you say, it would have been a bit of a hellish scenario to have two inconsistent um, outcomes for landlords and tenants. 
So I think if we take the decision of Master Dagnall, who dealt with all of the points mm. raised, and as you've said, it's quite lengthy judgment, which wasn't much light reading. <laughs> he <laughs> held, first of all, that the pandemics and lockdowns, he said, although unprecedented, he thought were foreseeable. Mm. And particularly, he paid attention there to the SARS epidemic uh, for that uh, conclusion. He said on that basis, it, he thought it wasn't surprising that landlords have, had obtained insurance and that he also pointed out that the tenants themselves could have taken out similar business interruption insurance too. Um, and there noted the earlier decision in the FCA test case that came out earlier this year. He went on to say that he considered that the rent had not been lost for the purposes of the landlord's insurance policies, as the rent cessor clauses required, what I mentioned previously, this damage or destruction to the premises. And in his view, there was no such physical damage. The pandemic, he said, had not caused the tenants to not pay their rents. They mm -hmm. had freely chosen to do so here. He went on to consider um, frustration, which hadn't been considered in the first decision. And he, he held that the leases hadn't been frustrated. And this, he said, was particularly in circumstances where the reasonably expected period of closure was deemed to be at most 18 months. Uh, well, hopefully. Um, and he said that that was favourable to the outstanding term of the leases, which were protected by the 1954 Act. And I think the terms left on those leases from recollection was something between 10, 11, 12 mm. years, that kind of arena. He further went on to say there was no judicial authority for the proposition that had been made that there could be a temporary frustration of the leases and that the leases could be could not be suspended either. And he said that neither was there a temporary suspension of the obligation of rent in light of the illegality to open during the lockdowns. He said it was just not the case that just because some of the tenants' obligations in the lease were illegal, that they were therefore all illegal mm. and therefore that the, the rent didn't have to be paid by the tenant. And then the final point you'll be pleased to hear, because there were quite a few, <laughs> was that there was no partial failure of consideration which relieved the tenant from needing to pay their rent. So the only relevant provisions in the lease, he said, were the rent cessor provisions, which he'd already been determined had not been met. So he said on the contractual allocation of risk, that the rent therefore remained payable. So as we've said, it really was a detailed and considered judgment and considered mm. a full range of arguments. Mm. And uh, that, that early finding you mentioned that to the effect that the pandemic was foreseeable, I, I imagine that's... Uh, that's a, a court finding that is, is something that could potentially have very widespread uh, impact across a, all manner of different types of disputes, not just rent disputes. You know, um, the foreseeability of the pandemic might be relevant yeah. in all kinds of ways. Yes, certainly in all types of contracts, um, that will be a relevant consideration. So, so we, may, we may well see this case cited uh, many, many times uh, in, the, in the months <laughs> and years to come. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I, it seems very clear that subject to any appeal, these two judgments taken together provide a, a pretty authoritative answer um, that uh, landlords will succeed uh, in claims for rent arrears. Um, do you think there's any room left at all for tenants to argue to the contrary? 
So yes, like you say, um, the tenants really did throw the kitchen sink at the landlords in these decisions, throwing you know almost every argument that could be conceived in terms of the reasons for non-payment of rent. The legal market has been getting particularly creative over the last year in these defences, but those arguments have now been shut down by the courts in these decisions, which, as we've already touched on, are both in keeping with each other. I've seen com- some commentary that says that, you know, these decisions make the score 2-0 to landlords. But I think you've got to remember that actually the second decision is actually a combination of three claims. Mm. So really what we're looking at is almost a reflective 4-0 score, if you want <laughs> to use that an- analogy. That being said, there is always an exception and there Mm. may be some cases where the provisions in the lease are unusual in relation to the rent setter provisions or have been specifically negotiated in terms of the allocation of risk between landlord and tenant. Those cases are going to be rare, though. And in the vast majority of cases, I think these decisions are currently undeniable authorities for landlords to rely on. Mm. I suppose there's also, you know, the point you mentioned that um, each uh, the the masters pointed out that the the tenants in this case, these cases, there was no evidence that they were unable to pay. They they had chosen not to pay. So I, I guess there could be cases uh, where the evidence was that the tenants were unable to to pay, and, and we we don't yet know how the courts might approach uh, that kind of scenario. Yes, indeed. Although I guess it could still be quite an uphill battle for a tenant in light of these decisions, yes. you would expect. But yes, it hasn't been specifically considered. Yeah. And uh, we know there are there are believed to be many cases um, heading to court, and the, the, the masters themselves referred to the other cases waiting in the wings. But do we have any idea of the scale? Do we the number of claims that are out there? Yeah, um, I do understand that the courts are currently well overrun with these types of claims and that the High Mm. Court have been trying to send claims back down to the county court to try and relieve some of that strain. I mean, as an indication, I remember reading an article back in the start of the year where the BPF estimated that by the end of June 2021, when the suspensions lifted, there's going to be something like £7 billion worth of unpaid rent Mm. for UK commercial property alone. I mean, there are a lot of figures banded around, but they are all equally as big as each other in this scenario. And I think it just shows how much of a problem there is for the sector, um, Mm. not just for landlords, but also the people who maybe aren't always immediately thought of behind them, such as the lenders, the investors, the pension funds, who are all feeling the knock-on consequences. And I think it's that that makes this situation we're in so difficult. Mm -hmm. I I think the landlords are going to be confident getting tough with tenants now particularly those who are refusing to pay but can pay mm-hmm. and those tenants are significant cost risks now in trying to defend those claims or continuing to defend these claims and with interest rates in leases and the court ordering the tenant to pay interest at a contractual rate that's in comparison to relatively low commercial lending rates so it doesn't mm-hmm. actually make financial sense for tenants to try and treat their landlords as a banker really for cash yeah. flow which some mm-hmm. landlords will have felt like they've had been treated over the last year i mean all that being said the difficulty for landlords does still remain in terms of enforcing judgments against the failing tenants mm. And the story doesn't end once the judgment's been secured, no. as the tenants may still try and bide some time in making payments and managing cash flow. But I think it's fair to say these decisions do put the writing on the wall for these tenants. Mm. 
So likely to embolden yet more landlords who haven't done so already to, to, to issue claims. But is there any reason why, and you know, we've got maybe I hope uh, two months left of, of the moratorium uh, subject to any further <laughs> extensions, which I'm sure no one's particularly hoping for. Um, is there any reason why they might hold off from bringing this type of claim and then instead opt to wait for, for some of those more conventional avenues of redress to become available again? It's interesting because there's been a lot of discussion about in the market about the potential what's been dubbed the cliff edge when mm. the other avenues become available again. But I think it's quite hard to envisage some of the remedies giving more practical solutions for landlords. So, for example, if we take forfeiture, landlords are going to be reluctant to use that because the reality is they'll then be faced with void units and business rate liabilities. Mm-hmm. Equally, in terms of CRAR, so commercial rent arrears recovery, if you take the tenants, some of the tenants in the case we spoke about today being a cinema and a bingo hall, then there won't necessarily be sufficiently high enough value assets to enforce mm-hmm. against for a landlord, to, especially given the sums that we're talking about in some of these decisions. So I think it's fair to say, although some of the other remedies will in effect give landlords, shall we say, some swords back in their armory, it's still going to be a game of brinkmanship, particularly Mm. in relation to forfeiture. I think the position is a bit different in terms of statutory demands and winding up petitions. And I think it's fair to say that's regarded as going to have a much wider effect. I mean, in our team, we've spoken to insolvency practitioners who've had draft CVAs on their desks for a while now. and we've seen a general downturn in the number of CVAs while the market waits to see what happens. So I think a combination of these decisions and the lifting of the moratorium could be critical in terms of how many CVAs we do actually see in the next 12, 6 to 12 months. And companies are also going to be waiting the outcome of the new look and the Regis CVA challenges and the outcome of the Virgin Active restructuring plan so that they can make Mm -hmm. fully informed decisions, bringing all of these things together. And I think that's why the government call for evidence that's going on at the moment to inform its policy is going to be so critical in terms of any recovery. Mm -hmm. Um, They're asking for views in terms of the six options they're exploring, which range from the measures all ending together in June to some expiring but some remaining formal mediation even adjudication whether that's binding or non-binding is between the parties and I thought it was quite interesting in Master Dagnall's judgment that he almost left the jaw ajar for the government almost when he said at the end that legal certainty remains paramount and gives the surest basis for resolution, but that anything else in his view was a matter for Parliament mm. and not the courts. So, you know, you could almost hear him calling <laughs> Parliament to know to, to step in here. Mm. So I think it's very much going to be a watch this space as to how all those things come together and accumulate into the wider ramifications for the market. And it seems like like we're very much in a kaleidoscope at the moment almost and that the best way I guess this is that the next turn could change the landscape significantly mm. in terms of how these all fall together. And just very quickly you you, you mentioned that that getting a judgment like this isn't the end of the road and so, so what briefly what would the next steps be for a landlord in in, in the position of one of these landlords if uh, a tenant still doesn't pay? 
Yeah, so it, in the first uh, instance, the court will set a time frame for payment mm. and that the landlord will need that ex- to expire. Um, they'll then need to look at enforcement options, which could be in terms of securing a charge against a property. It could be um, looking to appoint commercial bailiffs. It could be looking at craft, depending where we are with restrictions. They 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 would all need a, a factual assessment at that stage as to what would be best for that particular factual mm. circumstances. Um, and as we've mentioned, the, these two cases do involve some household names uh, uh, who will uh, who have uh, extensive property portfolios across the country. Um, and uh, the cases obviously have major implications for not only them, but for other uh, retail and leisure chains who've suffered during the pandemic. So do you think there is much prospect of uh, an appeal in these cases? Like you say, these portfolios are vast and they're (laughs) hugely significant, so it's really difficult. So any applications for appeal have to be made by the 7th of May, Mm-hmm. Uh, under the terms of the judgment so the start of May is going to be an interesting time in the sector with that and the close of the call for evidence there are rumours in the market of senior UK um, suggesting that they are going to appeal but mm-hmm. we're going to have to wait for next week to be sure yeah. and see what happens but I think given the, the fact that these decisions are consistent Mm-hmm. And as you've touched on with Master Dagnall's very long and particularly detailed decisions, I think the prospect of any appeal is likely to be very limited. Mm. OK. And uh, obviously the guidance all along, uh, certainly from government, has been for commercial landlords and tenants to cooperate and negotiate and find an amicable way through the hardships of COVID-19. Do you get a sense that this is still the, the, the common approach, the, the, the over, overriding approach being taken in, widely in the market? Or... In the light of these decisions, are tensions beginning to bubble to the surface? I think it's interesting, and I think there's almost a bit of a split between those tenants who can pay but aren't mm. paying and those who can't pay. I mean, in terms of those that have shown they clearly can't pay, we've seen landlords for a while now negotiating over the last 12 months and trying to find something that's mutually fit beneficial for both parties. So, for example, We've seen landlords drawing down on rent deposits, but agreeing not to call for top ups or agreeing to extend the term of the lease or removing a break option or anything similar to that, all in exchange for a rent holiday or deferment. I think the parties where leases have ended have also looked at this proactively and the market in the retail sector particularly seems to be moving towards more of a turnover rent model mm-hmm. so that going forward the risk is shared more between landlords and tenants equally. I think as we've touched on a number of times now the other side of the coin are those tenants who simply aren't paying and these decisions are the green light to get tougher on those tenants and push the cost risks on them. I imagine there are quite a few letters of before action or draft claim forms waiting in the wings ready to go. And these decisions will spur those landlords on. So tenants are now in a less favourable negotiating position, I guess, and will have to think fast to stop what's almost a ticking time bomb now with these proceedings if they're going to continue to let them run. And I think it's that element in property and this tension between landlords and tenants that's that's really so fundamental. I mean, it's not like other types of litigation where you have your fight 
and then the parties go their separate ways you know these relationships that are now very strained have to continue Mm. and they have to be overcome for those relationships to continue and I guess that's something we're going to see as everyone deals with the aftermath of the pandemic in different ways. Brilliant. Well, uh, you know, there's an awful lot going on and it's, it's a fast moving picture. So I, I'm sure we will uh, speak again on, on uh, this topic very soon. Hey, thanks very much for having me. You have been listening to On The Case from EG.